to continue their attempt to reach Malaysia. You're listening to the news on RTHK. That's going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. A triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. dollar falls again on weak U.S. economic data. U.S. wholesale prices slide into deflation and stocks close at a new record high. And China improves the terms on its muni bond debt swap. Well, as volatility continues in the commodities, FX and bond markets, we're joined this morning by ANZ's Greater China Senior Economist, Raymond Young, to help us make sense of the sharp moves. Next, Mazar's Stephen Weatherseed will tell us why large corporations are becoming more involved in human rights issues. And our final guest this morning is Zurich Insurance Global's Keith Thomas, who warns us about cyber threats. Peter Lewis is uh, back in the chair as co-host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So once again, the dollar is sliding. Why is this, Peter? Well, the dollar's tracking the uh, anticipated direction of U.S. interest rates. And at the moment, the, the chances of the Fed raising rates seem to be receding further and further into the distance. And there's only going to be two things that will change that. One is inflation um, and secondly, economic growth. But both of them are very weak. In fact, uh, the, the inflation figures that came out last night at the factory gate level show that the U.S. is in deflation now. And uh, economic growth is looking still like it's not going to pick up in the second quarter. The Atlanta Fed, using its GDP now model, is predicting just 0.7% at the moment for second quarter GDP growth. So if that, state, if that comes true, we're certainly not going to see any interest rate rises this year. Mm, the dollar fell to fresh three-month lows as a weak economic data pushed U.S. interest rate increases further into the future. The dollar index is a measure of the U.S. dollar against a basket of currencies, and it fell to 93 before rallying to 93.45 later in U.S. trading. Just one month ago, the dollar was heading for parity with the euro, but now it's trading close to 1.14%. Against uh, the Australian dollar, it has fallen to a four-month low, and against the British pound, it has fallen for a fifth day in a row. The pound now trades at nearly 1.58 against the U.S. dollar, which is its highest level since last November. The weak U.S. dollar is also affecting commodities such as oil and gold and is leading to increasing volatility in emerging markets and global government bond markets. So the question then is, will the euro head back to parity with the U.S. dollar? Here's SockGen's senior forex strategist, Sebastian Gailey. I think we're going to reverse a lot of the gains that we've seen right now. The dollar should appreciate. We're going to see some reversal also, I think, in fixed income. The U.S. is still doing relatively well as an economy. It's still you know, not an absolutely great story for growth, but it's much better than pretty much everywhere else. We need a very weak euro for a long amount of time. It's not a great reason to buy euro dollar um, over the long term. And eventually, euro will get stronger, but then the short term, I think, is really going the other way. A parity is certainly our call for uh, the beginning of uh, next year. I think the probability of that being reached is, uh, is somewhat diminished. I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, aversion to this happening both in the Eurozone as well as in the U.S. 
Well, volatility continues in the U.S. and European government bond markets. An early sell-off driving yields to new multi-week highs was reversed later in the day. In Germany, the 10-year Bund hit uh, 0.77% before reversing course to close at 0.7%. The benchmark 10-year bond hit a record low yield of just five basis points one month ago. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond, which just six weeks ago yielded 1.80%, uh, fell three basis points to 2.25%. So what does Mario Draghi think about the effect that central banks are having on interest rates? Faced with uh, an environment of unprecedented complexity, the ECB has taken a series of unconventional measures to prevent a too prolonged period of low inflation and deliver its mandate. These measures have proven to be, so far, to be potent, more so than many observers anticipated. While a period of low interest rates will inevitably result in some local misallocation of resources, it doesn't follow that it has to threaten overall financial stability. Structural reforms that increase confidence in economic prospects and encourage entrepreneurs to capitalize on today's extremely accommodative financing conditions will make our policy commensurately more powerful. Peter, what do you think? Do you agree that unconventional monetary policies are encouraging entrepreneurs to invest? No, I don't. Um, negative interest rates, which is where we are in Europe in, in some cases, don't encourage people to invest in businesses, either new businesses or um, existing businesses. What it does do is it encourages reckless financial market speculation. But in terms of um, making entrepreneurs invest, I, I think it's completely delusional for him to think that. I mean, what it actually does is, if anything, it keeps zombie companies alive because companies that really should have gone to the wall and been allowed to fail still exist. And that crowds out new investments and new businesses that do want to start up and take their um, and take their place and what we really need is a real positive rate of interest to encourage people to get a good rate of return on investing in the economy not investing in financial markets and taking um, big gambles on on you know speculative financial instruments that are being thoroughly mispriced and distorted by the world's central banks you know draghi himself said that you know with continued uh easing, you know, people get used to that uh, and think of it as the norm. So, you know, if that's the case... Well, What's the wisdom? Well, the, the, the norm, for example, in a country like Denmark is if you want to take out a mortgage, um, you now get paid by the bank for taking out that mortgage. And if you're a saver, um, you get charged for putting your money in the bank. I mean, if this is the new normal, then our financial system and our economy is in deep, deep trouble. So I should buy a home in Denmark but keep my bank account elsewhere. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how the Danish bank would feel about that. But, you know, it's just a, a crazy state of affairs that, uh, that we're witnessing at the moment. And this is why we're seeing so much volatility in the bond markets right now because that clearly can't continue. And, um, you, know, it's, you know, we are starting to see the very beginnings of some sort of normalization. All right. Well, U.S. Uh, producer price inflation is falling at its fastest rate in five years. PPI fell 0.4% in April compared to economists' expectations of a rise of 0.1%. And on an annual basis, produce, producer prices are falling at a rate of 1.3%. The lack of inflation in the U.S. economy increases the chance that the Fed will delay interest rates rising and uh, has increased downward pressure, of course, on the U.S. dollar, as we said earlier. A retreating dollar and 
and lower bond yields were positive, however, for U.S. stocks. The S&P 500 closed 1% higher at a new record high of 2,121. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 191 points at 18,252, and the Nasdaq regained the 5,000 level to close at 5,050. Exactly. Uh, Gold also closed up higher, another $6, uh, to close at $1,221 an ounce, which is its highest level since February. And Peter, then there was this fake uh, takeover bid of Avon. Can you fill us in? Yes, a very strange story. A fake takeover bid in U.S. uh, cosmetics firm Avon sends its shares soaring on huge volume. An entity called PG. PTG Capital Partners said in a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that it had made an $18.75 a share cash offer, which is 184% premium to where the shares were trading just before the announcement. Shares in Avon shot up 20% and four times the average daily volume was traded in just 25 minutes before Avon denied that it had received any takeover offer. Further investigations revealed that PTG Capital did not appear to exist and the takeover bid was a hoax. And then the the shares fell back again after Avon made the announcement. Mm. Closer to home, China has taken further measures to help local municipalities restructure their debt. One trillion yuan of local government debt owed to banks will be converted into municipal bonds, which will yield between 0.8 and 1% above the yield on equivalent Chinese government bonds. The banks will then be able to use these new bonds as collateral to borrow from the PBOC. So let's bring in our next guest. guest, or our first guest, I should say, of today, ANZ's Greater China Senior Economist, Raymond Young. Good morning, Raymond. Good morning. So, Raymond, can you tell us what is the scale of the debt problem with the local municipalities in China? Um, There hasn't been a uh, comprehensive um, survey about size of debt. The market has been estimating that uh, at the moment is roughly uh, somewhere between 20 trillion to 30 trillion um, local government debt uh, in China. Now, if you compare that with the size of GDP, it doesn't seem to be excessively uh, um, high, you know, because uh, we just talk about 30% to 40% of the GDP. Uh, but the problem is the ability for the local government to pay, and uh, even if they want to pay back the debt, how are they going to raise funding? And that be- uh, has become a structural problem. For example, local government has been engaged in uh, different forms of land sales in the past decades that result in a property bubbles. So uh, in order to address that, the government has already allowed um, allowed the uh, local government to issue bond and uh, the bond swap measure that uh, launched uh, you know, a couple of days ago uh, is actually a positive step, uh, positive step for the government to address the issue. And, and how will that help exactly these uh, these these local municipalities? Because you know they're they're obviously swapping debt for for bonds, so in effect putting that debt back into the the mainstream of the financial system. But nevertheless, they still have to at some point pay that back, don't they? Exactly. Um, that's only part of the uh, comprehensive package that I believe that the government's going to uh, address the issue. It's still a structural issue about how the local government can raise the funding. And a fiscal reform is needed, not only through this type of uh, uh, financial arrangement between the local commercial banks and the local government, uh, but at least that now um, 
local government has the motivation to reveal uh, how much liability they own to uh, to the market, and uh, that's um, is in, now in the form of bonds. And commercial banks, you know, because of the market-based operation, at least that you know uh, the bond yields of the debt, and um, if needed, they're able to um, uh, activate the bond market, and which is actually a, a positive step for China's to develop the capital market because the Chinese capital market has been so equity biased and that lacks a, um, a local active local bonds market. And now with these arrangements, uh, hopefully uh, that can make the bonds market in China become more vibrant and uh, allowing market-based operation. So Raymond, from, from the bank's perspective, will that then help them um, increase their lending and thus sort of stimulate the economy? Uh, um, you know, given the fact that Chinese uh, banking sector is still largely state-owned, if they, whenever they need it and whenever they want to meet the, the, the M2 target set by the government, they're able to pledge their loans, you know, to uh, to the favorite state-owned enterprises. Now, of course, uh, at the moment, what's faced uh, China is the very high credit risk, and uh, even banks or even state-owned banks, they don't want to lend uh, the money to the state-owned enterprises. Um, so, in the end, you know. Uh, this bond swap cannot address this issue. Or what actually China needs is to activate the demand. You know, it's not a supply side issue right now. It's the demand side issue. Uh, whether the uh, sluggish economy um, will recover and um, the investor confidence, especially for the infrastructure investor, they're able to come back to market and um, and borrow from the commercial bank. And that's the, the real problem at the moment. Raymond, uh, what do you think about the issue of the PBOC controlling bank uh, deposit rates going forward? I mean, right now they're asking banks to hold off on raising deposit rates. Um, they are now having a cap, you know, that's been lifted uh, last week to 1.5 times the uh, benchmark rate. Uh, and the benchmark rate has been lower to uh, two and a quarter percentage point for the one-year term deposit. But the overall backdrop is that China is like to uh, completely or entirely liberalize its interest rate market. So in the not-so-distant future, and I believe next time when the PBOC is going to lower the or to cut the uh, interest rate uh, on the deposit side, they're going to remove the cap and allow banks to uh, set the interest rate uh, flexibly. They have already removed the lending side uh, two years ago, um, and uh, banks will be allowed to, to lend money and charge whatever interest rate they like. Of course, it largely depends on the liquidity condition in the, in the money market and also the demand um, uh, of the borrowers. Um, I, I believe that next time um, the PBOC will still be uh, cutting interest rate you know, because of um, the downside risk facing the economy. But at the same time, they're going to remove uh, the, 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 the cap on the uh, deposit rate uh, in the next um, next time because this is now uh, a time for China to complete interest rate liberalization that's been uh, promised by the PBOC a couple of years ago and oh. 2015 is the deadline. All right, Raymond, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this morning. That is Raymond Young and he is a senior economist for Greater China at ANZ. The Nikkei is up six-tenths of a percent to 19,692. Australia and Seoul also up. Uh, Australia is up uh, uh, 0.18% to 5 5,702 and Seoul's Kospi up uh, also six-tenths of a percent to 2,132.
time is now 8.18 a.m. And certainly, uh, I think we at Money for Nothing are looking forward to the weekend, wouldn't you say, Peter? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, human rights uh, activists and corporations were often at odds with each other, but the situation has changed drastically in the last few years. Large corporations who wish to attract diverse workforces are becoming increasingly involved in human rights issues across the globe. The Economist Intelligence Unit and international tax and accounting firm Mazars have launched a new business report on uh, business and human rights. Mazars uh, Managing Director Stephen Weatherseed is here in our studio to tell us more. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Renita. So, Stephen, the UN has issued some guiding principles relating to human rights. How do we get companies to adopt these principles? Well, uh, you're right. The, uh, the guiding principles were issued in uh, 2011, just a few years ago. Um, and it's been on the agenda, although it's been on the agenda for quite a number of years prior to that. But th- that was the first real formal statement to come out. Uh, following that, there's been now, just a couple of months ago, something called the reporting framework that's been issued. And this is, this is, uh, if you like, the practical implementation of those uh, guiding principles and giving a guide to, to corporates as to how they can actually implement them. And uh, you're right, uh, the, the, the survey that we commissioned with the EIU, along with a number of other corporates, I must say, and, and uh, NGOs, that survey showed that 80-odd percent, 83 percent, of corporates uh, right across the board actually had this uh, high on their agenda, the issue of, of their engagement in human rights and taking human rights uh, issues as far as the impact on their, their employees and their other stakeholders very, very seriously. So now, it's right up there on the agenda for them. Now, when you say human rights, are you specifically talking about factory working conditions, rights to organize, fair wages, those kinds of things? Yes, it goes uh, It goes beyond that as well. It goes to uh, rights to education, uh, uh, privacy rights that uh, obviously are sort of on, on agendas here in, in Hong Kong as well for us, uh, s- general standards of living. But then it can, can get quite exotic as well with regard to rights, for example, if, if you're a mining company or, or you know, uh, a plantation company uh, acquiring land and, and, and needing to uh, have land cleared and needing to negotiate with indigenous villages, for example. So it, it, it goes right across the board. There's a big spectrum here. What specifically are we seeing, Stephen, with Bangladesh? Because this is one country that really has come under the radar since the Rana disaster in 2013. Have we seen any actual changes there? Well, I, I can't speak specifically about changes on the ground in Bangladesh, uh, but, but clearly that event uh, uh, gave a huge profile to, these, to, to this particular issue. Uh, and indeed, um, obviously, you know, on the news, the, uh, the, the tragedy in the Philippines yesterday is another example of, uh, of, of workplace uh, problems uh, affecting, uh, affecting the garment industry. Um, but what, as I say, what it has done is, is to, to really put this issue of, of uh, uh, human rights and the engagement of business in human rights on the agenda for, for corporates. And uh, we, we've seen some of the, those very large uh, uh, garment companies, uh, Gap, etc., actually being forced to come to the table and, and uh, not only put compensation on the table for the for the victims, but really also elevate this issue on, as far as their agenda is concerned uh, going forward. Because obviously the objective is to prevent and avoid these kind of, kind of situations occurring. So Stephen, I assume that it doesn't just apply to emerging markets. I mean, if we take a city like Hong Kong, for example, a, a developed city, you know, a, a thriving economy, um, there, there are human rights issues here as well that companies have to address, aren't there? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are, it, it, again, part of the big problem here is, is definition and, and helping uh, each individual company, each business to, to define 
uh, as far as they're concerned, what are the, the most salient, and that's the word, the adjective that's used, salient, what are the most salient issues affecting them uh, from a human rights perspective? And even if you take the uh, just take the financial services sector, it might be easy for us to sit in an office and think human rights aren't, aren't really relevant to us. But um, if you're investing in in mining, or or if you've outsourced your uh, uh, your call center to uh, you know to, to, to somewhere where the uh, employment conditions aren't so aren't so healthy for the uh, for the employees, th- these are all issues that that really need to be on your agenda. I'd suggest. All right. Many thanks, Stephen. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. That is uh, Stephen Weatherseed, and he is uh, Managing Director at Mazars. Our focus on human rights will continue on Monday, and we'll reveal more at the end of the show. <laughs> Well, Asia makes up uh, 50% of the world's internet users, and as online activity grows, so does the occurrence of malicious threats and attacks. The Zurich Insurance Group has just launched a report on cyberspace risk and the impact of emerging technology. So let's bring in their global corporate uh, APAC CEO, Keith Thomas. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. So, Keith, tell us about your report. What concerns do you actually raise in it? Well, I think we, we raise a number of concerns. I think the, the first one is there's there's lack of an overarching governance framework at this point. So um, one of the key recommendations is how can we take some of the existing um, overarching governan- governance frameworks like G20 and maybe bring a cyber element to that because it's it's really a big issue for governments. It's a big issue in the business space. And I think one of the key takeaways really is for business, don't expect an answer from that very quickly. And as a business, you need to be very proactive in starting to address these issues as an organization. Keith, are there some obvious risks that are commonly overlooked? For example, uh, financial transactions being conducted on smartphones. I mean, are people even aware of the need to protect their smartphone as they are? You know, they seem to be aware enough about uh, protecting their work PC sort of in the office. No, it's a key. It's a key issue. It's actually a cornerstone if you're looking at call it cybersecurity. Is making sure that all all mobile devices, whether they're personal, bring your own device to work, or, or your own personal phone, uh, you know, has some level of encryption. Um, otherwise, you're open to, to quite a bit of um, exposure. And actually, one of the things at a recent conference I attended that was uh, quite an alarming statistic. The individual mentioned that what happens often is these individuals get into your company's um, data and systems, and they're there for generally over 100 days to 200 days without you knowing that they're in your system. So it's really important to prevent them from getting into the system at the start through human error. So, so what sort of um, steps could companies take to, to try and protect themselves from these type of uh, cyber attacks to make sure that rather than having to deal with it afterwards and all the potential reputational damage that, that occurs, you know, you, there's things they can do uh, to stop that up front? I think the first thing is it, it needs to be a, a major boardroom topic of risk so that it's, it starts at the top. I think, you know, clearly there's there's no way to build the walls high enough, so to speak, to keep everyone out. So it's about building quite a bit of resilience in your organization and taking a look at your systems and making sure there's resilience on that and testing them. I also think, um, you know, in Asia, we're a huge supplier uh, to the world. We've seen some major supply interruptions with the Thai floods I think companies need to also take a seriously hard look at their supply chains and supply chains with a cyber view because many companies, if you look at the finance space, are relying on one or two major vendors for their data. And we've had an experience two weeks ago or a week and a half ago where one of them went down. It stopped all the trading. So, so these things are real. Really looking at your supply chain, 
both data issues? Because if you're doing, using the cloud, where, where are there overlapping dependencies for you and perhaps your competitors? And I presume companies also have to look at protecting the, not just their data and, and, and you know, uh, transaction details, but things like intellectual property as well, which, you know, if that gets um, sort of stolen, that can cause untold damage to a, to a company's sort of prospects going forward. Yeah, it's, it's a big issue now. Uh, intellectual theft, I mean, particularly in government bidding situations. So um, having diligence around that system, um, how you manage the, the data, for bids is, is, is critical. And that, that gets to another issue around the governance because they're very different views on what the role of the state is versus business. So um, I think it's important that businesses, again, step up and really look at this and make sure they're taking the right precautions. And, and governments can't even agree, can they, on, on what is actually constitutes sort of theft of intellectual property and, and you know, what actually constitutes uh, you know, something that's, that's gone beyond the, uh, over the line. Exactly. There's, there's sort of two, two, two schools on that right now or two, two views. There's called American-European view. You want to keep things open, that, that business should be protected for intellectual property and others um, that, that feel that it's okay um, if it's in the interest of the public to secure those types of, of confidential data that may, may provide a competitive edge. So, Keith, it's one thing for sort of larger companies and larger corporations to sort of uh, seek outside help uh, with a view to protecting themselves. What about smaller companies, startups? What are the one or two key things that they should do? I think similarly, they should set up certain protocols. Um, you know, make sure you've got a business continuity plan in place that looks at things like data security, um, and data access, which may be critical for your company. Make sure you're encrypting all of your mobile devices for your, for your, your, your employees. And then I would also say, while insurance is a part of the piece and, and this mm -hmm. technology changes quite quickly, you know, they should look at insurance options, which helps protect them from a cash flow and a balance sheet perspective. There are There is some uh, advice out there which says, you know, maybe uh, one of the things to do is to use a program which allows you to maintain a whole set of different passwords for different uh, – uh, to access different uh, accounts. But isn't that counterintuitive? I mean, what if that itself gets hacked? That, that's a problem. I think I – think one of the issues that we've seen is many organizations set up certain levels of encryption. The question is, how, how deep does it go? Um, many companies outsource a lot of these things, in particular startups as well. So there's a common framework, and, and these people understand how the frameworks are set up, what the weak points are. So I think building redundancy into your system is important. And to the extent you can partner with another vendor that helps you build that resilience, build warning signs within your system at the start – the better off you are. All right, Keith. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Keith Thomas, APAC CEO for the Zurich Insurance Group. A quick announcement from the Transport Department, which says that due to traffic accidents, part of the lane of Lungcheng Road, Kwaicheng bound near Beacon Heights are closed to traffic. Remaining lanes are still available to motorists. The Nikkei is now up uh, eight tenth of a percent to 19,737. Australia's ASX uh, 200 up six tenth of a percent to 5,726. And Seoul's Kospi up two tenth of a percent to 2,124. In currencies, one euro is valued at 1.14 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119.26 yen. And one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 22 cents and one US dollar and 
57 cents. Well, uh, Peter, here we are once again at uh, the end of the show. Uh, tell us quickly about Monday. Yes, well, we're going to continue with our theme of human rights with a special focus on LGBT issues. And uh, later today, Community Business will launch Hong Kong's inaugural LGBT Workplace Inclusion Index. I'm going to go along to that uh, ceremony and, and report for Money for Nothing um, on that on Monday and also interview some of the winners in the various categories, including the LGBT Network Award and the Inclusion Champion Award, and hopefully bring some of those winners along to the studio. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that on Monday. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Peter, uh, Peter Lewis, founder of Peter Lewis Consulting, who is our regular guest host. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. And let's not forget a big thank you to our producer, Sandra Lamb. And now the half hour news with Samantha Butler. The United States is planning to send one of its most formidable weapons to Australia as part of its strategic plans to deal with any threats by China in the South China Sea. Radio Australia's Michael Vincent reports. The Obama administration's decision to place B-1 bombers and surveillance aircraft in Australia was announced during a Senate committee hearing on the South China Sea. Assistant Defence Secretary David Scheer also talked about the doubling of US Marines in Darwin to 2,500 he says it will ensure a very strong posture and presence for the United States. To back our commitments to our allies, to protect our and work